Once again, we've come to the end of another liturgical year. Once again, the Church asks us to consider the end of the world. A couple points before we get into that. First, there's a whole uh, like a flood of end-of-the-world nonsense, Protestant errors floating around. Uh, we don't want to fall for any of that. So any, if the enemy have any of these kind of things around your house, you open the door of your wood stove and chuck it in. Second, the teaching of the Catholic Church is clear. There's no such thing as the rapture, and there's no such thing as the millennium, this so-called thousand-year reign of Christ our Lord. He came visibly the first time as a baby on his mission of mercy, and he'll come to us visibly and finally the second time at the end of the world as our judge. That's it. There's not like some two and a half comings of our Lord. He comes twice. That's it. No rapture, no millennium, period. Third, in today's gospel and elsewhere, our Lord has commanded us to read the signs of the times. Watch ye therefore, because you know not at what hour your Lord will come. Behold, I come as a thief. Blessed is he that watches. Blessed is he that watches. So we're supposed to watch, but we know not the hour. So if we hear anyone setting dates when all these future things are to come to pass, we should remind ourselves of the teaching of the Fifth Lateran Council. And I quote, Preachers are in no way to presume to preach or declare a fixed time for future evils, the coming of Antichrist, or the precise day of judgment. For truth says it is not for us to know times or seasons which the Father has fixed by his own authority. Let it be known that those who have hitherto dared to declare such things are liars, and that because of them not a little authority has been taken away from those who preach the truth. Close quote. Lateran 5. So on the one hand, we're commanded to watch the signs. On the other hand, we're reminded that we can't be completely precise since no one knows the exact dates or times, okay? Fourth point. Obviously, this is an exciting topic, but we're not supposed to have some sort of chicken little, the sky is falling tizzy fit when we start thinking about it. The example we should cue off of is that of St. John Birchman's. One St. John Birchman said, that uh, great uh, Jesuit scholastic. It was recreation one day, and he and his fellow Jesuit scholastics were shooting pool in the recreation room. One of, one, one of them said, Hey, if you found out the world was going to end suddenly right now, what would you do? And St. John Birchman's just kept shooting pool. He said, I'd keep right on playing billiards. What's the point of the story? The point of the story is it was recreation time, so they're supposed to be recreating, and he was. He's in the state of grace, which we're supposed to be, and he was. We're sp- if we're doing our duty, and we're in the state of grace, we're where we need to be. It's not such much of a concern of when we live in history as how we die. That's the important thing, how we die. If we die in the state of grace, we'll be saved. So we want to do our duty, stay in the state of grace, and do our duty in our state of life and not have some sort of chicken little fit every time we start thinking about things like this. Let's turn to the topic. Before we do, we have to make sure we understand the meaning of the word type. What is a type? A type is a person, a thing, or an action that actually exists, but it is also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. So type is a person, thing, or action that actually exists, but it's intended by God 
to foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. We'll consider a few examples to see how it works. In the book of Judges, we see Jael. Now, this is the woman that saved the people of Israel. And how does she do that? Because she pondered a tenth stake through the head of a sleeping enemy general. Later in the same book, we see the woman who saved Israel when she dropped an upper millstone on the head of an em- another enemy general. In the book of Judith, we see Judith who saves Israel when she cuts the head off an enemy general. Now, in each one of these cases, there are at least three types. Obviously, Israel existed of itself, but Israel is also intended by God to prefigure the Catholic Church. So Israel is a type of the Catholic Church. The enemy generals really existed, but they were also intended by God to represent Satan and the enemies of the church, so the enemy generals were types of the devil. And the women who crushed the heads of the enemy generals really existed too, but they're obviously intended by God to prefigure her. And if you look carefully at the statue, you'll see what she's doing. She's stomping on the head of a serpent. Okay, Our Lady crushes the head of a serpent. So when we consider these women and what they did for Israel, we can see foreshadowings of Our Lady and what she does for the Catholic Church. So what's a type? A type is a person, a thing, or an action that actually exists, but which is also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow future person, thing, or action. All right, so much for the introduction. We'll turn to the topic at hand. In 2 Thessalonians 2, 3, St. Paul explicitly teaches that the day of the Lord, Judgment Day, the end of the world, can't come until there first be an apostasy, a great falling away from the true faith, a great revolt against the true faith, and that in the wake of that apostasy, the great apostasy, the man of sin, the son of perdition, the Antichrist, be revealed. The fathers and doctors have explained what this apostasy means. For example, St. Thomas Aquinas explains that this apostasy will be separation from the faith and from obedience to the Pope. Pope St. Leo the Great teaches that indeed the great apostasy will mean abandoning the faith and obedience to the Pope. St. Augustine adds that this event must precede the coming of the Antichrist. And St. Augustine states that not all will abandon the faith, but that few will retain it. So for the next two weeks, we'll consider a historical period and a ruler which the fathers and doctors have always considered to be a very clear type of the great apostasy and the Antichrist. Why would we want to study this man in his times? Because the clearer we see the foreshadowings, the clearer an idea it will give us of the actual future reality that they point towards. So today what we want to do is consider some of, more the prominent, some of the more prominent features of the apostasy which took place in Jerusalem around 170 B.C., and next week we'll consider the man who's such a clear type of the Antichrist. We'll do this by first uh, reading lines from the Holy Scriptures. It's found in the inspired books of 1st and 2nd Maccabees. And then we'll reflect on the meanings of those scriptures by turning to the great commentary, great scriptural commentary. It was prepared some 400 years ago by a saintly Belgian Jesuit, Father Cornelius de Lapide, who at the order of the Pope spent some 40 years assembling the works of the Church Fathers into a massive 21-volume, line-by-line commentary on the scriptures. So we'll get started. The inspired word of God, quote, In those days, there went out of Israel wicked men. And they persuaded many, saying, Let us go and make a covenant with the heathens that are round about us. 
and some of the people determined to do this. Close quote. Cornelius Lapidy commenting on that line. The leader of the wicked men was Jason, who treacherously managed to seize the high priesthood for himself. Why? So that he might introduce Gentile rituals and customs, and especially false religions and idolatry into Judea, and pursue the attending unrestrained, unbridled, open lusts. So what's happening here? We see that those with the true faith, instead of carefully, even scrupulously, remaining faithful to God and avoiding any pagan practices and trying to convert their pagan neighbors by their example and by their words, instead they're turning away from their holy religion and allowing themselves to become paganized. Notice also that the leaders are priests. It's one good priest I know likes to point out. Whenever you see the church go down, it's an inside job. Notice also that we see here a link between false religions, idolatry, heresy, and lust. Inspired word of God. And they built a gymnasium in Jerusalem according to the laws of the nations. Close quote. So they built a gymnasium in the holy city. And you might think, so what? It might help to know that what we mean by gymnasium is not what it meant in those days. Gymnos is a Greek word for naked. It was a place to exercise buck naked. So much for modesty, but think of where they're at. Not only are they in the Holy Land, they're right there in the Holy City. But there are more details we find in sacred scripture about this. This will be slightly edited and paraphrased, uh, not because I want to be God's editor, but because it needs to be because of the youngsters. Quote, the high priest Jason began to bring over his countrymen to the fashion of the heathens, and he abolished the lawful ordinances of the citizens and brought in fashions that were perverse. For he had the boldness to set up a gymnasium and to put all the choicest use in certain types of houses. Close quote. Now I have to have an even more highly paraphrased uh, version of Cornelius Lapide's commentary. Not only did the youth learn the Greek games, such as the discus, etc., but also they were corrupted by being taught all types of perverse sins. They were certain types of clothing as a sign of types of immodest behavior. They were consecrated to pagan gods, in other words, devils, such as Astarte or Venus. The houses they lived in were connected to taverns. Actually, the whole thing is so bad, I don't even like reading it in Latin. Cornelius, Sodapide, back to him. Here we're taught that just as the true religion is associated with purity and chastity, so impurities and lust are associated with false religions and heresy. So as the apostasy progresses, we see immodesty and nakedness and perverse behavior. You might just think of San Francisco and Boston. Another slightly edited and paraphrased quote from the inspired word of God. Now this was not the beginning, but an increase in progress of heathenist practices through the abominable and unheard of wickedness of Jason that impious wretch and no priest. It grew so bad that the priests were not now occupied about the offices of the altar, but despising the temple and neglecting the sacrifices, hastened to be partakers of the games and of the unlawful allowances thereof. And disdaining the honors of their fathers, they esteemed the Grecian glories for the best, and they followed earnestly the heathen customs, and in all things they coveted to be like them, who were their enemies and murderers. 
It grew so bad that priests were not, not occupied about the offices of the altar, but despising the temple and neglecting the sacrifices, hastened to be partakers of the unlawful allowances. And Coinus the Lapidae enlightens us, quote, The allowances were called unlawful because these were young, shameless, lewd women. Close quote. So the priests abandoned and despised their priestly duties. Remember that a vast number of the sacrifices they're neglecting are sin offerings. Priests begin to act like heathens. They start running around to the most foul worldly entertainments and running around with companions with loose morals. We continue. Word of God. Quote, The temple was full of the riot and revelings of the Gentiles and of men sinning with lewd women. Close quote. So you have parties, pagan rites, and lewd behavior going on in the holiest place in the universe. The inspired word of God. Quote, and women thrust themselves of their accord into the holy places. Close quote. Well, of course, uh, since the very beginning, since the time of Adam and the true worship of God, women have always been forbidden from this kind of behavior. In the temple... If a woman were to go into any of the holy places proper to the priest, the strict duty of the Levites was to kill her. There's plenty more, but we can get the general picture. Let's remember what a type is. A type is a person, a thing, or an action that actually exists, which is also intended by God to prefigure or foreshadow a future person, thing, or action. Now, keep in mind that the apostasy at the time of the Maccabees is a type of the great apostasy. In other words, it gives us a prefigurement of the great apostasy, and all the fathers have seen this. Among other things, the Jewish people prefigure the Catholic people. The Jewish priests prefigure the Catholic priests. The Jewish temple prefigures the Catholic church and parishes, and the city of Jerusalem prefigures the world. So based on the indications we've seen in the prefigurement of the apostasy during the fulfillment, in other words, during the great apostasy itself, here are a few of the things that we might expect to see. A dramatic rise in imos behavior and dress and perverse behaviors, most notably certain politically correct sins and those associated with Boston. Catholics abandoning the true faith the traditions of their fathers and turning to false religions, paganism, and worldliness. Catholic priests neglecting their priestly duties, especially the holy sacrifice of the Mass and the application of the once-for-all sin offering to sinners in the confessional. Catholic priests engaged in worldly entertainments, spending time in the company of companions with loose morals. Women invading the sanctuaries of the true religion. The behavior inside Catholic churches becoming increasingly unbecoming, disruptive, and irreverent. So, if we were heeding our Lord's command to watch, these would be some of the indicators we would be watching for. We need to keep in mind that our Lord has actually appointed official watchmen to keep us posted. Let's hear from them, because they have the office to watch. The first two quotes have been edited for the sake of time. Quote, 
Who can fail to see that society is, at the present time, more than in any past age, suffering from a terrible and deep-rooted malady which, developing every day and eating into its inmost being, is dragging it to destruction? You understand, venerable brethren, what this disease is, apostasy from God. There is a sacrilegious war which is now almost everywhere, stirred up and fomented against God. And we find extinguished in the vast majority of men all respect for the eternal God and no regard paid in public or private life to God's holy will. Instead, every effort is used to utterly destroy the memory and knowledge of God. When all this is considered, there is good reason to fear, lest this great perversity may be, as it were, a foretaste and perhaps the beginning of those evils which are reserved for the last days, and that there may already be in the world the son of perdition of whom the apostle speaks in Second Thessalonians 2.3. Such, in truth, is the audacity and the wrath employed everywhere in persecuting religion, in combating the dogmas of the faith, in brazen effort to uproot and destroy all relations between man and the divinity. Well, on the other hand, and this, according to the same apostle, is the distinguishing mark of Antichrist, man has with infinite arrogance put himself in the place of God, raising himself above all that is called God in such wise that he has mocked God's majesty and, as it were, made of the universe a temple wherein he himself is to be adored. He sitteth in the temple of God, showing himself as if he were God. Second Thessalonians 2.2, close quote. Pope St. Pius X, First Encyclical, October 1903. Second quote, quote, Everyone should examine the world seated in wickedness, First John 5.19, with his eyes and with his mind. Young people are induced to renounce Christ, to blaspheme and to attempt the worst crimes of lust. The whole Christian people are constantly in danger of falling away from the faith. These things, in truth, are so sad that you might say that such events foreshadow and portend the beginning of sorrows. That is to say, of those that shall be brought by the man of sin, who is lifted above all that is called God or is worshipped, Second Thessalonians 2.4. But is yet more to be lamented, lamented, venerable brethren, that among the faithful themselves there are found so many men who are laboring under an incredible ignorance of divine things and who are infected with false doctrines who lead a life of vice without the light of the true faith, so that they truly seem to sit in darkness and in the shadow of death. There's a greatly increasing carelessness concerning church rules and discipline, now those ancient traditions by which family life is governed and the sanctity of marriage is safeguarded. The education of children is altogether neglected or else it is depraved. There's a sad forgetfulness of Christian modesty, especially in the life and dress of women. There's an unbridled desire for material goods, and lastly, a contempt for the word of God, whereby faith itself is injured or endangered. But all these evils, as it were, culminate in the evil of those who, following the example of the traitor Judas, either receive Holy Communion rashly and sacrilegiously, or else go over to the camp of the enemy. And thus, even against our will, the thought rises in the mind that now those days draw near of which our Lord prophesied. And because iniquity hath abounded, the charity of many shall grow cold. Matthew twenty four twelve. Close quote. 
Pope Pius XI, Encyclical on Reparation of the Sacred Heart, May 1928. So an encyclical was written roughly 100 years ago and 80 years ago. The popes explicitly warned us it may very well be the beginning of the end. Since then, quote, We are overwhelmed with sadness and anguish, seeing that the wickedness of perverse men has reached a degree of impiety that is unbelievable and absolutely unknown in other times. Close quote, Pius XII, 1949. Quote, Venerable brethren, you are well aware that almost the whole human race is today allowing itself to be driven into two opposing camps, for Christ or against Christ. The human race is involved today in a supreme crisis which will issue in its salvation by Christ or in its dire destruction. Close quote, Pius XII, 1951. Quote, I sometimes read the gospel passages of the end times, and I attest that at this time some signs of this end are emerging. Close quote, Pope Paul VI, 1977. End quote. When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Will he find faith in our countries, in this Europe of Christian tradition? This is an open question which clearly reveals the depth and the drama of one of the most serious challenges which we are called to face. European culture gives the impression of silent apostasy on the part of people who have all that they need and who live as if God does not exist. Close quote, Blessed John Paul II, 2003. Okay, for a full century, the popes have been reading the signs of the times and warning us warning us that things are grinding to a close. So what are we supposed to do? Remember that God's in charge. He loves us. He knows exactly when he wants each one of us to live. We don't want to imitate Chicken Little. We want to imitate St. John Birchman's. We need to do our duty in our state and life. We need to get serious about our faith. Serious about personal holiness. Say rosary and three Hail Marys every day. No exceptions. Wear your brown scapular. Stop sinning. Go to confession at least every two weeks. Make fervent communions. Spend time before our Lord in the most blessed sacrament. Put God first. Become holy. Do your duty. It's pretty basic. Everybody just has to do his duty.